All right, let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, thank you for this privilege to know you. Lord, we want to know you more. And we ask as we reflect upon an important topic this evening that you would just speak to us and that you would bless us. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this evening we're addressing the topic of a matter of life and death. Uh, We're going to be addressing the very important topic that many people grapple with, what happens when we die? And is there hope in the face of death and in the midst of our loss and our grief? So what I'd like to do is just kind of walk through how man came into existence according to Scripture, what the source of life is, what happens at the end of life, and so forth. And just kind of walk through what Scripture's position is, and then we'll close with a really, really, really important point. But let's look at the source of life. We're told in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 12, that he or she that has the Son has what? They have life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So Jesus is the author of life. We were told in John chapter 1 uh, that all things were made through Jesus. In Colossians 1, we're told the same story, the same idea, that Jesus is the means through which God created on this earth. We're told in John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus speaking here, he said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So life is not conditional. It's a person. Jesus is our source of life. If we don't have Jesus, we wouldn't have life. So our life is basically borrowed from God, right? And what he's asking of us is to be good stewards of this gift. This is one of the reasons why it would be wise to take care of our bodies, right? This is borrowed. This isn't something we're just entitled to. This is something that God has given to us and loaned to us. But speaking of this, go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16. We're told this, speaking of Jesus, that Jesus alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. The Bible says here that Jesus alone possesses immortality. So this is not something that you and I naturally possess. It's a gift from God. Okay, that's what the Bible has told us. So those who eventually will have an experience of eternal life have received that as a gift from God. It's not a natural disposition that they have or something that's inherently ours. It's given to the redeemed for eternal life. We're told in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28 that it's in Him that we live and move and have our being. So we live and depend upon God for our life. Whether we follow God or not, that's the truth that Scripture tells us, that this is the overall source of life for humanity. It comes from God Himself. So how did He create us? Well, in the book of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it says this, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. And we talked about this a few evenings ago, that whenever God formed man, the very way in which he makes him communicates intimacy and value and love and care. And so God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And then it says that man became a living being, or as the King James says, man became a living soul. Okay, so kind of the formula for human life is the dust of the ground and the breath of God these two together end up creating a living being or a living soul. If you were to remove part of this equation, if you remove the breath of life, we would cease to exist, right? You would no longer be a living soul. You would just be 
dead, right? Completely undo the, the um, basic formula for, for the creation of humanity, if that were to be the case. And so if we eliminate the breath of God, we won't be a living being. And the interesting thing is God, again, could have said, let there be Adam, and it was so, but he doesn't do that. He forms man, and he's material in nature, he's spiritual in nature. God has formed us into a complete holistic being. But Job, in the book of Job, we see some listings here or some references that kind of further uh, other people in Scripture's understanding of how we came into existence. So this is Job. He had quite a few statements on this. Job chapter 27 and verse 3, it says, As long as my breath is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils. What's another way that he could phrase that? As long as this is going on, as long as I live, right? As long as I'm alive, as long as I'm living, this is what I would do. Okay. Then we get to Job chapter 33 and verse 4. It says that the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So he equates this reception of the breath of life with our, our continual living. And so the Spirit and breath are also used interchangeably here. If you see this in these two verses, the breath of God is in my nostrils, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The, the uh, these words are actually used interchangeably in verse 4. Spirit of God, breath of the Almighty. These are the two things that are essential for human life. Okay? This is the way Scripture's communicated this. But what happens at the loss of life? What does the Bible say about what happens when our lives end? What takes place in this moment? Well, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19, God tells Adam and Eve, after they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... After they had eaten, God had to tell them the consequences. Now, he told them beforehand that in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, did they die immediately that day? No, no but a process of deterioration and death began at that moment. Right? That process began. But he says this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. And listen to what he says. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Maybe you've heard that said before at a funeral. From dust to dust. That's what's being implied here, right? We basically return uh, and deteriorate over the course of time in the ground. So that's where we came from. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7 says something very similar. It says that the dust will return to the earth as it was, and then it says that the Spirit will return to God who gave it. But the word Spirit here is actually the word for breath. This idea that the power source, that spark of life that God gives humanity, returns to Him, right? We return to the earth, but that spark of life returns to God. And this isn't an individual separate personality, it's just the transmission of life ceases, okay? That's what it's talking about here. And so, because it's super important for us to realize that in the book of Genesis, it did not say that God gave Adam a living soul, it said that Adam became a living soul. Do you see the difference? It's not that God inserted a soul into Adam, that when God took the dust and the breath, that's what actually, um, i trying to think of a better word to use for this, but that's basically what brings about a human soul, the dust and the breath together, okay? So here's a very interesting fact, that the word spirit appears 379 times in the Old Testament, but not once does it denote an intelligent entity capable of existence apart from a human body. 
This is a really important point because there are many people who believe today that the Spirit is something that is like a, a separate conscious, intelligent entity that kind of inhabits a human body and then eventually goes somewhere whenever we die, maybe up or maybe down. But the Bible doesn't seem to be implying this. When we see the formula for creation, God isn't giving man a soul. Man becomes a soul. And when man breathes his last breath and that spark of life returns to God, he ceases being a living soul and there is no soul floating anywhere here, there, or wherever. That's what Scripture's saying here. Okay? And the fact that it's used 379 times and is never referring to a conscious separate entity is telling. Right? That's an important point. Going to Job chapter 14, beginning of verse 10, it says this, But man dies and is laid away, and indeed he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no more. They will not awake, nor will they be roused from their sleep. Scripture here is referring to our state when we die as something that's equivalent to sleep, that we're in a resting state, not a conscious state, but a resting state, and that he doesn't rise until the heavens are no more. We'll come back to that point actually in our next verse, because these verses continue from verse 12, now to 13. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. He's saying, I will remain in that grave until my change comes. So he breathes his last, lies down, doesn't rise again till the heavens are no more. They're not roused from their sleep until my change comes. So what he's saying here is the death that you and I die on this earth is temporary until the heavens be no more. But this also shows that there's no consciousness in death. Right? He's not doing anything in the meantime. He's in a resting state, we're told, at least until our change comes. But the question then is, when does our change come? Well, if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and beginning in verse 51, the Apostle Paul picks up on this idea. In fact, he's using the very same language that Job used many, many, many years before him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Same language of Job. In a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, and when does that happen? At the last trumpet. Now, if you remember from last night's presentation on the second coming, what's one of those things that happens at the second coming of Jesus? The dead in Christ will rise, yes, but specifically what we just read and what's underlined here, there's the sounding of a trumpet, right? For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. But it doesn't happen until the second coming. We will be changed, but at the second coming. This corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So immortality, again, as it says in 1 Timothy 6.16, is a gift that is given to the redeemed at the second coming of Jesus and not before then. Do you see that? That's what the text of Scripture is saying. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. There will be no more night at that stage. Amen? Amen. So we shall all be changed and given a glorified body. 
I don't know about you, but there are weaknesses that I have encountered in my body. Though I'm not all that old, there are things I'm learning through the course of my life that things don't exactly work the way that they used to in certain phases of my life. And I realize like muscle pain and soreness and injuries and other things. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that glorified body. Anybody else? Anybody else longing for that and craving for that? No more aches. Um, so they should make a song just about that. No more aches. <laughs> So that's when we're going to receive a glorified body, right? A body that doesn't see deterioration, that doesn't see decay, no lactic acid issues or joint issues or so forth. And we're given that immortality at the second coming of Jesus, but not before then. That's what Scripture's telling us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, beginning of verse 13. Paul speaking to his church here, right? One of the churches he's overseeing. But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have falling asleep. Now, is he talking about people who are taking naps? No. no. What do you think he's talking about here? Yeah. Don't like, are you concerned about people who are sleeping? No, you actually usually find a lot of peace in the fact that they're at peace and sleeping, unless they're sleeping in church or on the job or driving a vehicle or flying a plane. Then yes, you would be concerned. But in this situation, that's what he's saying. Don't be concerned about those who, are fall, who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope, right? He's saying, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope, implying that those who sleep in Jesus fell asleep in hope and that we can have hope for them. Amen? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. He's going to raise those people who sleep in Jesus right now. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So we're not going to get to heaven before they do. Okay, and he continues. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ will rise first. They will go before we do. They will come out of the heart of the earth. They will be given glorified bodies as they're coming out of the earth. Thankfully, you're not going to have like a bunch of like old skeletons or just piles of dust coming out of the ground. Like these are glorified bodies coming out of the earth. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So they come out of the earth first, and then we go and join them, and we meet Jesus in the clouds. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Right? There's great comfort that can be found in this understanding that we aren't just, you know, Paul says this in other places. In 1 Corinthians, he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Right? If we only have hope in Jesus in the here and now, but there is no hope in the hereafter, what a shame. Right? We gave our lives to something for what at the end of the day? Right? We do have hope and we can be comforted by these words that Jesus is indeed coming again and we never have to leave him in that day. I'm so thankful for this. Okay, We'll be with him from that point forward and this can bring comfort to our hearts. Going back to the book of Ecclesiastes, it says this in chapter 9, beginning of verse 5. For the living know that they will die. Right, There's two guarantees in life you've heard people say, death and taxes. Right, There's we will all die unless we see Jesus come in the clouds. That's just, just the nature of life. No one has cracked that code after thousands of years. No one's figured it out. But it says, but the dead know how much? Nothing. The dead have no conscious understanding of what's going on because they're dead, right? They're sleeping. 
and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also, their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Right? They're not feeling emotions at this stage. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. The Bible's stating here that when somebody falls asleep in Jesus or falls asleep outside of Jesus, either way, when someone falls asleep, when they close their eyes for that last time, they're not interacting with people here. That's what the Bible says, right? If they're in a sleeping state and they're not going to see Jesus until the second coming, that means that there's no one there, right, in heaven or in some other place. They're just resting. They're in a holding pattern of sorts, having no emotions, no thoughts. They're just preserved in that uh, frame of mind. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. You're not going to do anything there. You're just going to rest. Now, they're not aware of the fact that they're resting, right? From when they close their eyes for the last time to Jesus coming in the clouds, this is an immediate reality for them. In the same way, how many people have had those moments where you're going to hit the snooze button for 30 minutes? And as soon as you close your eyes, that dang alarm makes a sound and you think, excuse you, I just closed my eyes. But the clock says, actually, it's been 30 minutes. You ever been there? Right? Or you're just cashed out. You go to sleep at night. And before you know it, that's, it's going to be the same way for us. It's a peaceful process, but that time will move quickly. So they have no understanding of time. They don't know what's happening on this earth. They're not watching you suffer and go through trial and difficulty. They're in a sleeping state with no consciousness. Okay, so there's no knowledge or wisdom in the grave, no more emotions for the dead. And King David understood this, or the psalmist said this in Psalm 146, verses 2 and 4. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And then it says in verse 4, while his spirit, and again, the word breath is actually what's used here. Another word for this. Those words are used interchangeably, but it's talking about the breath of life. The breath of life departs, he returns to his earth, and in that day his plans, or as the King James says, his thoughts perish. Okay? So he says, while I live, I'll praise the Lord, because when I die, I'm not going to be praising God. Even though that's a wonderful thing to do, you're not going to be doing that because you're not in a conscious state. And this verse sounds very much like Genesis 3.19, doesn't it? The dust shall return, right? To dust you shall return. Okay? And it's interesting because it says in Psalm 115, very clearly, verse 17, that the dead do not praise the Lord, right? Nor any who go down into silence. The Bible is equating death to a sleep, to a resting state. There is no conscious understanding of what's going on in the earth. That's what the Bible is saying here. Now, Jesus makes a very, very interesting statement here. Um, well, one last point on this. That this shows that people cannot communicate with the dead. Okay, that the dead are not able to communicate with us. But this is the interesting thing. I want to go to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 28. Jesus makes a statement here uh, that's very fascinating and even somewhat confusing until we kind of flesh this out. He says, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here, speaking of his disciples, who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, a very important question for you. Has Jesus come back yet? No. No. Okay. Uh, are any of those 12 guys alive right now? No. no. All right. Well, there's tension here, isn't there? Yeah. Thankfully, the Bible doesn't leave us in that tension. Now, in the way that the Bible was written originally, there were no verses or chapters. Okay. There, there were no markers that told you this is this verse or this is this chapter. They just had a scrolls, like two rolling pins with leather parchment 
no spaces, no vowels. Like they just, it was just block format basically of the writings of scripture. And so when you have this scenario, it's easy for us from a Western mindset that when we change chapters to assume that the thought is changing or moving on to something else. But there are times in scripture where that's not the case. So it's helpful as a reference tool to have those chapters and verses, but that doesn't really allow us to understand the full train of thought at times in Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay, because it kind of distorts our understanding of how that may work. So the very next thing that happens in Scripture after Jesus makes that confusing statement, it says this, Now after six days, six days after what? After Jesus makes a confusing statement that some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Well, look at what happens six days later. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he leads them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. This is kind of alluding to what's going to happen to people at the resurrection. Their their presence changes, right? Their demeanor changes. Their whole, the view of them is different. They look different. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, two people appeared to them talking with him. Who are these two people? Moses and Elijah. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles or three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So this statement of transition at the end of chapter 16 happens that some of you will not taste death till you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Six days later, something happens that's significant and connected to that statement. It continues in verse 5. While Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Then his disciples asked him, saying, Well, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. What's the point here? When Jesus says that some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, the very next thing that happens is a type, a snapshot of what the second coming of Jesus is going to look like. Jesus is in a glorified body. We hear the voice of God. Jesus is surrounded by clouds. We talked about that last night in the second coming, right? Jesus is coming in the clouds. And then there are two individuals present. And again, who are they? Moses and Elijah. Moses represents those who will die and be resurrected at the second coming of Jesus. Elijah represents those who will never taste death but be translated. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Elijah never tasted death. Elijah was translated into heaven, and Moses himself died. But the book of Jude tells us that Michael ends up disputing with the devil. Michael the archangel ends up disputing with the devil over the body of Moses. 
and takes Moses to heaven. Moses is one of the few parties who are present in heaven who have lived on this earth. We have Enoch who walked in the earth and then was, he was and then he was not because God took him. He was translated to heaven. We have Elijah who was translated to heaven. And then we have Moses who died and was resurrected. Those are the ones that we know of at this stage, right, that Scripture alludes to very clearly. But these two people, Moses and Elijah, represent, again, the two classes of the righteous at the second coming of Jesus. Those who sleep in Christ and will be resurrected, and those who are translated without ever tasting death. Does this make that statement in, in chapter 16 make more sense now? When he says that some of you will not taste death till you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom? He's saying you're about to see something, Right? And something's going to happen that will give you a picture of what the second coming will look like. I thought this would be really, really helpful. But what does the ultimate death look like? What well, says this in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And then it says, the soul who sins shall die. die. It's possible for a soul to die. Now remember... Man was not given a soul, man became a soul. So it makes sense that if someone's going to die the ultimate death, apart from Christ, that everything about them is going to die. Does that make sense? The entire aspect of their being, everything will die. The soul who sins shall die. So souls are not immortal. You do not naturally possess a soul that is immortal that will either go up when you die or go down when you die. Immortality is only a gift that is given to the righteous at the second coming of Jesus. That's what Scripture has told us this evening. Does that make sense? Okay? It's the only way that happens. Then we get to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Jesus says this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The complete aspect of your being will be completely destroyed in hell. We're going to talk about hell Friday night. Or we'll talk about this whole process. How does this work? What does it look like? We'll address that in two evenings. Okay? The point is the soul can be destroyed. It's not naturally immortal. Okay? That's what the Bible says. I want to look at another story here of Jesus and Martha. Okay? John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, this is a story of Lazarus. Maybe you've heard this story before. We're going to read through this, okay? John chapter 11 and verse 1 says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Jesus visited this home frequently in his time on earth. They were very good friends of his. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But did you notice they didn't even tell Jesus to come? They just said that he whom you love is sick. Why do you think that is? Because they know he'll come. If we just tell Jesus that Lazarus, his friend, is sick, that's all we need to do. But then it gets to verse 5, and it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now there's tension here, isn't there? Jesus loved them. Jesus made them wait. Now, We've been told that God is love in 1 John 4 and verse 8, 1 John 4, later in that chapter, I believe in verse 16 or verse 18. 
Now, if God is love and Jesus is God, that means that everything Jesus is going to do is from a nature and a disposition of love. So the only reason why he would make them wait is if he's going to do something that they would ask for him to do if they knew what he knew. Does that make sense? The only time that God would have us wait is because it's for our benefit to wait and that it will bring glory to God if we wait. And he shows up in a powerful way. Does that make sense? The only reason why God would allow for a circumstance like this is if he's about to get a whole lot of glory out of this scenario. It's the only way this would happen. So it says, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. But the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? But he said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus, then what does he say next? Sleeps. But I go that I may wake him up. Now the disciples don't get where he's going here, so like, uh, wait a minute. They said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. Don't wake him up if he's taking a nap. He needs to get his rest. He's not feeling well. However, verse 13, Jesus was speaking of his death. So how did Jesus communicate what death is like? according to scripture, sleep. But they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, he says, that you may believe. So what he's about to do is going to lead to people believing in Jesus, in believing in his power, in believing in his love. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Okay, verse 16. Then Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he'd already been in the tomb for how long? Four days. Now there's a reason for this. There was a tradition, unfortunately, this whole idea, by the way, of someone having a soul that is you know, separate from the body, that we're physical beings, but we also have a separate entity that's intelligent that's called a soul. And so we're, th- that whole idea came from Greek thinking, this idea of Platonic dualism. It came from Plato, this idea of the dual nature of man, the soul of man and the body of man. And this caused problems even in the Christian church, because unfortunately, the culture of Greece was so pervasive. We actually talked about this already in one of our presentations about the kingdoms that would rule the world, right? We had Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. So the kingdom that ruled before Rome did was Greece, and they sacked the known world, and they, inf- they really, really changed the way the known world did life. Because the New Testament that's written during the time of the Romans is actually written in what language? Does anyone know? In Greek. It's written in Greek. It's not written in Latin. It's written in Greek, which is very fascinating that even though that's not the kingdom of the day, the main language of trade and commerce and and of common folk is Greek. And so this culture had a big influence, even on the way that some rabbis believed and the ways that people in Jesus' day believed. And part of what he had to do here was to dispel some of this. So one of the beliefs that they had in their day, some of the Jews, was that the soul doesn't leave the body for three days. After three days, then the soul leaves the body. That's what they thought. And so Jesus, unfortunately, by working all these miracles, awakens opposition from the religious leaders. 
and they're even starting to throw shade at resurrections. Well, I mean, he wasn't really dead. He was only dead for 36 hours. Can you imagine the amount of hatred they had for Jesus that they're bringing into question a resurrection from the dead, y'all? They weren't really dead. And so Jesus intentionally waits four days to make it abundantly clear that when I want somebody to raise from the dead, they're going to raise from the dead. Amen? Now, when Jesus wants something to happen, it's going to happen, and it does. Okay, so he's dispelling this myth that was taking place amongst the people at that time. Now, Bethany, verse 18, was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went out and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you imagine the first words out of her mouth when she sees Jesus is that I'm hurting because you weren't here. Anyone ever felt like that? I'm suffering. I'm hurting because you weren't here when I needed you most. And you imagine this, this thought process and this statement has been repeated day after day. Because imagine, you send people to tell Jesus Lazarus is sick. He didn't tell him to come because you know he'll come. And then Jesus, just imagine, you're watching your brother get worse day after day after day. And that familiar silhouette never crosses the threshold of your home. And your brother dies. It's heartbreaking. It's difficult for them. And so when Jesus comes, she knows that this is one of the things I love about Martha. Martha knew Jesus well enough to know that he can handle our frustration, our questions, and so forth. Amen? Amen. Beloved, Jesus can handle your questions. He's not scared by them. Sometimes if we need to go through this process to just let him know, this is how I feel. This happened and it wasn't okay. I don't understand what you're doing. And I just need you to know that. I know that you love me, but I'm wrestling with what's going on right now. Would you help me make sense of this? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then she says something interesting. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. It's almost as if she has hope that maybe things could change, but we'll see what happens later. This happens in our grief. We, we think and do and say things that many times can even be contradictory with one another because we're just overwhelmed with our grief. But Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Amen? Amen? Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the latter day. Yeah, I know that. I know he's going to rise again later. It doesn't help me right now. I can't feel the warmth of his embrace. I can't hear the comforting sound of his voice. And, and let's just be honest. The fact that there's going to be a resurrection does bring comfort, doesn't it? But does it make the sting of loss go away right away? No. no. And that's where she is. What I love about Scripture is it gives a clear picture of our humanity, right? All of our foibles, all of our blemishes. It gives a true picture of humanity. It doesn't make it look super glorious. But Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And so Jesus here is making a relationship of death to sleep, that it's temporary, okay? Lazarus is going to rise again. Now, now here's a statement that I think is really, really important, something to think through. If he's already risen and in heaven, why does he need to rise another time? 
Think with me this evening. If Lazarus has died and his soul went up to heaven, if that's actually a true teaching, I don't believe it is, I don't believe that's where Scripture is pointing, but if that is the case, isn't it kind of cruel for Jesus to make him come back down to earth to suffer and then to die again? Whenever you'd rather be in the glories of heaven, that would be difficult, right? I would wrestle with that. Excuse you, I like it way better up here than I do down there. But there are no instances in Scripture, this is a really important point, there are no instances in Scripture where a person being raised from the dead explains their experience in heaven or in hell. Now, there are modern authors that are doing that today, but Scripture does not do that. In fact, I've met one of the people who wrote that book. I had them sign the book. I'd read it. And uh, in, a, in a previous form of philosophy in my life. And, but there are, the Bible is absolutely silent on resurrection stories. I was in heaven and I saw this. I was in hell and I saw this. And that should make us think. And right? that should actually kind of get us, our gears turning here. So death is a form of sleep and the dead in Christ will awaken to the second coming. That's what's been alluded to in this narrative so far. And those who are alive will be caught up in the clouds and so forth. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he, may die, though he die, he shall live. We'll go ahead and finish the story of Lazarus just because I got a little bit of real estate here to do it uh, briefly. Um, so I don't leave you guys hanging on a cliffhanger if you haven't heard this story before. Um, that was the main point I wanted to make with you, but I'll go ahead and share with the narrative just real quickly. So it says this. So then Mary came to where Jesus was. Um, And she fell down at his feet and saying to him, this is verse 32 of John 11, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She literally says the exact same words, the exact same punctuation that her sister said. And you can just imagine, this is something that was said in this household multiple times. If Jesus was here, we wouldn't be hurting right now because they had a misunderstanding of what the Messiah's role was to be. They thought that if Jesus is here, I'm not going to suffer. But what they didn't understand was that's not a promise that Jesus had made. They were looking for a Messiah that had not been promised. That if I have Jesus, I'm not going to suffer. That's not the point that's being made here that we need to understand. The point we need to understand is when we suffer, Jesus is here. Amen? Jesus has not promised you freedom from hardship. We live in a sinful world, but what he has promised is his presence and his comfort and his peace in the midst of our hardships. Are you with me tonight? Okay, which is an important distinction. So then, when Mary came, she says this to Jesus, verse 33, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And then it says in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. God cries in this moment because of the unbelief of the people. Because they say, couldn't he have done something about this? And this is something that really weighs on Jesus. So he says, where have you laid him? And they say, come and see. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And then some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? It's the unbelief of the people that moves Jesus to tears. He knows what he's about to do for Lazarus. He's not caught off guard. His heart breaks because they don't understand who's in their midst and what he wants to do for them. In verse 38, then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb It was a cave and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And you would assume that Martha's going to say, amen, Jesus, take away that stone. But you know what she says? 
It stinks, Jesus. Just like this whole situation, it stinks, and there's nothing you can do about it. You ever been there? Seems like Jesus is on the move, and you're like, no, 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 you can't do anything. I already know this situation is hopeless. So she says, I know God will give you whatever you ask, but he's about to do something powerful and raise her brother from the dead. No, 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 you can't do that. He stinks. Do you think Jesus is limited by any physical circumstances going on in that tomb after four days? No way. If he can reconstitute a dead body on resurrection morning, I assure you he can deal with Lazarus even if he has a, uh, a bit of an aroma. Okay? But he says, did I not say to you that if you would believe me, you would see the glory of God? Jesus tells her, the glory of God lies in this stinky tomb. The glory of God lies in the midst of this stinky situation that you don't understand and you don't know what to do with it. I'm still in charge here. And he raises her brother from the dead and says, Lazarus, come forth. And it's such a powerful and crowning miracle in Jesus' ministry that eventually gets the religious leaders so upset that they're now intending not just to kill Jesus, but they've even got to kill Lazarus because so many people are believing in Jesus because of this guy. This rocks the surrounding areas when they hear that Jesus raises this man from the dead, even though he's been dead for four whole days. Beloved, Jesus has the power to raise the dead. Amen? Absolutely. All right. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Here's the solution, beloved. Jesus tasted death for everyone so that we don't have to die that ultimate death we read about earlier. Continuing now to verse 14 of Hebrews 2. Inasmuch then as the children are partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Jesus is acquainted with our weakness, with our brokenness, with our, with our fears, right? Jesus is acquainted with the human experience. He didn't sin, right? But the point is that Jesus is acquainted with the human experience of the emotions we go through and the challenges. Jesus was acquainted with the grief of loss and death and so forth. But it says that he himself likewise shared in the same, that through his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, which is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus, I don't know, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands this evening, but I'm sure many of us in this room struggle with fear of death. We struggle with the unknown. We struggle with our mortality. But Jesus came and died the death that you and I deserve so that we can die as conquerors and not be afraid because our security is in Him. And if Jesus can raise Lazarus and if Jesus can burst that tomb on day three, I promise you on resurrection morning, if we're sleeping in Jesus, He's not going to leave you. Amen? Amen? He will call you forth to join Him forever. And in verse 16, for indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are being tempted. I love this. The human nature of Jesus, he was divine and human, but the human nature of Jesus and his being acquainted with our grief and trials in this life is what gives him 
power and permission to comfort you and me when we're hurting, when we're going through challenges, when we're suffering. Amen? Hebrews 4 says something similar. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that suffering Messiah, let us hold fast our confession. Now, why does he say this, the author of Hebrews? Because he knows that in our trials and difficulties, we can be tempted to forsake our confession in Christ. Some of us maybe had this. We were believing in Jesus and trials came and we left because we thought like Martha and Mary did that when I had Jesus in my life, trials won't come. Not recognizing that the promise wasn't that trials wouldn't come. Jesus says in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. Beloved, if Jesus has overcome the world, I assure you he's overcome whatever you're dealing with tonight. Amen? Whatever burdens you're carrying, Jesus can handle that. And so some of us, maybe we left because we thought maybe we were looking for a Messiah that hasn't been promised. We thought that when we have Jesus in our life, trials won't come, and so we left. The, the, the person who's writing the book of Hebrews is saying, don't, this is not the time to let go of Jesus when you're hurting. Don't let go of Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then what does he tell us to do? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that precious? That you can come boldly into the presence of Jesus when you're hurting, when you're down and out. Don't forsake your confession. Cling to Jesus and storm into his presence and he will not send you away. Then we get to Hebrews chapter 11. And it seems like this strange interlude because Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is better than the angels. And Hebrews 2 says that Jesus is better than Moses. Hebrews 8 and 9 and 10, kind of that area, talks about Jesus as a better priest. He's involved in a better covenant. The whole kind of idea of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus. He's better, better, better. All the things we celebrated, all the things that we, we view and esteem highly from a Hebrew mindset, Jesus is better than all of that. He's the fulfillment of what those things were pointing to when it comes to the law or other things, you know, the, the sanctuary service or whatever. But then we get to Hebrews 11 and it starts talking about how awesome people were. Samson and Abraham and different people. And I think, well, we, we kind of call it the hall of faith. You ever heard somebody call it that before? Hebrews 11, the hall of faith instead of the hall of fame, hall of faith. But I assure you, the book of Hebrews isn't talking about the supremacy of Jesus and then stops and talks about how awesome people are and then goes back to the supremacy of Jesus in Hebrews 12. It's talking about the faith of Jesus in these individuals. They possessed the faith of Jesus. So Hebrews 11 isn't about the people. That's the point. Okay? It's about Jesus. And so it's highlighting the faith of Jesus. And then it says this towards the end of Hebrews 11. Well, actually, and we know that it's talking about the faith of Jesus in these people because Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who worked out that powerful story of faith in their lives. It says in Hebrews chapter two, uh, 12 and verse 2. He's the one that did those powerful things through them. But then look at how Hebrews 11 closes. They had these powerful life stories. And it says, you know, that some were, were tortured and stoned and sawn to, sawn into, of whom the world was not worthy. The world does not deserve people such as this and their testimonies. But listen to what it says in verse 39 of Hebrews 11. And all of these 
having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. That promise is referring to the resurrection. He's saying all these champions of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, they're not in the glories of heaven enjoying it without you. They're waiting right now. They're not going to enjoy this without you. Isn't that powerful? Yes, they may have lived amazing lives. They may have done things through the power of God. But God is going to give a fair reward at the end of the day that everyone receives that reward at the exact same time. Amen? We serve a God of fairness and of justice. So we're going to have, they're going to have to wait for that special reunion that happens on resurrection morning. But beloved, God too is waiting to see them again. Think about it. You think God misses these souls who are on this earth that he communed with? who loved him and cared for him. Just imagine, God was building a relationship with these souls in their prayer clauses, in their devotional lives. When they would hear powerful and inspiring sermons, God was speaking to them. God was pouring his life into them. And when they breathed their last breath, God also is going to have to wait to be reunited with them. And I love this picture of God that he's not going after privileges that you and I don't have access to because when we lose those people who are close to us, we miss them, don't we? We miss their presence. We miss their face. We miss their advice, some of us, right? We're going through trials in life and we wish they were still here to give us that counsel and that wisdom. But guys, God knows what it's like to wait on being reunited with those that he loves. God understands that waiting. He understands the tension and the pain of waiting. He misses them too, but he's resting in the surety of his own promise to come again and to bring the family back together. God is not enjoying their company while you and I suffer and grapple with our separation from them. He too is waiting so that we can all enjoy that experience together. And he's encouraging us to rest in the surety of his promise to come again. And this is why I believe Paul was saying in 1 Thessalonians 4 to comfort one another with these words that the dead in Christ will rise first and then we'll be caught up together with them to meet Jesus because he's guarding those who sleep in him until we can be reunited together on that great day. He says, comfort one another with this understanding that God's waiting too. We're all waiting to have that reunion. And this is why Paul also says in Titus chapter 2 that the second coming is called the blessed hope. God is willing to wait so that he doesn't have to have this experience without you. Amen? It's again a reminder that God thinks you are precious. God values you, and he would not want you to miss such a glorious experience. I'll wait, he says. I miss them terribly, but I'll wait, and we'll do this together. Amen? I think it's beautiful, beloved. Absolutely beautiful. Has this made sense this evening? Yes or no? As we're seeing throughout the course of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, that when we die, we're in a sleeping state, awaiting our resurrection. No more sorrow, nor death, nor crying during that span. Our family members aren't looking down as we suffer and stumble and fall away from the faith and then come back. They're not watching any of this. They have no understanding of what's going on on this earth. No one's coming to visit us, the Bible says. The dead know nothing at this stage. But He will resurrect us on that precious morning of the second coming or evening, whenever it comes. And then we're all going to enjoy that together. So I want you to grab your decision cards. 
It's an opportunity for you to kind of give your feedback, give your interaction with us, and grab these decision cards, put in your personal information there. And here's our appeal for this evening. That I accept, number one, I accept the biblical teaching that death is asleep until the resurrection. I accept the biblical teaching that death is asleep until the resurrection. Number two, I want to be ready to meet those whom I love that are sleeping in Jesus in those clouds when He comes to take us home. I want to be ready for that. We talked about this last night. I want that lamp and my window still to be burning. I want to be ready when Jesus comes. I want to see them again. I want to have that experience. That's number two. So whatever of these apply, we've got to check boxes on your decision cards. One, two, three, four, five. These are the numbers and the definition for each of those. So if one applies to you, you can check that box. If two applies to you, you can check that box and so forth. Number three, I'd like to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. If that's you, it's your first time making that decision in our meetings together, check that box. Number four, I have a question. Okay? Now, we have a handout. There is a handout that everyone's going to get as you leave here. Please study through those after you come to these meetings. Study through them tonight or tomorrow morning. You'll get even more information on this topic. We're not going to give you an exhaustive presentation and keep you here until you fall asleep. We're not going to do that. We try to keep these meetings short and to the point, and we give you supplemental information. Study through the study guide. And if you have questions, write it on the back of the thing. Okay, write it on the back of your card. You got a question, we'll follow up with you. Okay, we're happy to do that. Number five, I have a prayer request. There's something that's a particular prayer request that's on my heart. Please help with that. And any other request that you have, you can check five and say, I, I don't have a prayer request, but I, I need help with this. I need help with that. Help us help you, okay? Let us know how we can be of a service and be of a blessing to you. And I have erred in my slides. It's not tomorrow night. It's Friday night. <laughs> One of my dear sisters over here kept me accountable. It's Friday evening. Um, Friday evening, we're going to address the topic of the fate of the wicked. We talked about the fate of the righteous uh, and given a brief allusion to the wicked, but we're going to give a full explanation of this. What does hell look like? What does the Bible say about that? Uh, And so Friday evening's topic is unquenchable love. But I'd like to close with a word of prayer. Again, you can still continue filling out your cards. In fact, I'll put this back up for you to be able to see for a few more moments if you want to have any additional information on there. But let's pray. God, I want to thank you that you are so unselfish that you're willing to wait to see those that you love. You miss them. You long to commune with them once again, but you're willing to wait just as those champions of faith in Hebrews 11 are waiting, and we're going to all experience this together as one big happy family. And God, I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. I want to be there. I want to enjoy the experience of having no more night, no more pain, no more sorrow, nor crying or death. Lord, I want to see Jesus put death to death. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come soon. Bring us home, and may that reunion come sooner and sooner, we pray. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.